Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome in episode three. This is off the chest without Mike Pecky. I'm Brian Dunseth. Uh, today, the man, the myth, the legend. Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. No, his name is Craig Weibel, ladies and gentlemen, the general manager of Real Salt Lake. I gave it a shot. Hey, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, man. Um, I mean, I guess Pecky's still out near the Jersey Shore looking for Polly D or the Sitch, who's out of federal, federal penitentiary up in Kennedy. Snooks. Snooks dog. Um, how are you? I'm good, man. Yeah? Yeah. Have I'm, you listened to any of these yet? Be honest. All of them. <laughs> good. You have no idea what's about to happen. <laughs> no, I have no idea. I mean, I'm not going to lie. No, I'm, I haven't listened. I, you know, I talk to you frequently, and I talk yeah. to Mike frequently, and I figure... That's enough you need to hear of our I voices. can record our conversations <laughs> if I want to like listen back. It's fair and slightly aggressive all in one. I appreciate <laughs> you. Hey, uh, we just got done taping the Mike Pecky Coaches Show downstairs. Um, there was a bunch of different jokes. Yeah. Was I off base? Was I offensive? Did you enjoy? Oh. Where, did, where did I rank in my performance as host? Well, I, I, thought, you, I thought you did a good job. I, I have very thin skin. That's what people don't, don't know about me. Uh, I, I feel like I, that is a completely jo- false statement. <laughs> this job, you know, allows you to have very thin skin. So mm-hmm. for a long time, especially when I played, because I was such an outstanding player, I never heard critical thoughts about myself or my performance or my because looks you're on or the my sideline. family. Or, <laughs> I mean, the list goes on and on. <laughs> but, yeah, I know I could hear everything when I was on the sideline. What was, was the most offensive thing anyone ever said to you as a former player? Oh, man. I mean, my mom, my dad, my family, all of those were... Uh, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of people that kind of said things about my family, but they just didn't understand that my family's got a great sense of humor. We, we, we get on each other's cases and whatever we give the, each other a hard time, you know. So was never going to. Yeah, I mean, look, I have a twin brother with a full head of hair, so like people don't realize that when you go bald at twenty-one and your fraternal twin looks like Tom Selleck from Magnum PI, like full on, like the Aloha shirt, that whole thing, like you, your your skin gets thick. Real quick, man. So I could care less about the full head of hair, but did he have a caterpillar mustache like Tom Selleck? He he does when he grows it out. It's it's ridiculous, it's man. I'm I've been jealous for several decades at this point. <laughs> Can you? But you you got a stash in there? Yeah, I got like that that 1980s cop stash though. Like I got the one where Super Trooper stash. Yeah, yeah. Like you look at it and you just giggle. Like there's nothing serious about it, and that's kind of the. That's the the problem I run with. You know, my my favorite, I was playing outside left back, and I forget, it might have been San Jose at the old Spartan Stadium, and uh, I kicked the ball, it went out of bounds, and someone goes, stick a fork in him, he's done, Seth. (laughs) And I was like, ooh. I had a group of guys when I got got waved, which is a really polite way of saying cut, uh, from the Galaxy, and the, the Earthquakes picked me up. For the first seven home games, I got heckled at home. Hmm. For the first seven games, by this group of five guys, like nonstop. I mean, it was, it was. I got berated. I mean, they. I couldn't do anything right. I couldn't jog onto the field for warmups correctly, and and this was home games. I got heckled less on the road in two thousand three for the first half of the season, and I finally just walked over to the guys after the game. I was like, guys, if I take you out for drinks, like, can can we call it good? And <laughs> can we and, be friends? And we went out for a beer afterwards, and I was like, okay, just get it out. Yeah, just like. Hammer away. And by the end of the night, we were all laughing about it. And, like, then all of a sudden, you know, they were great supporters. Yeah. But, yeah, those first seven games collectively were the – like, it, it was one of the strangest things to go onto your home field and just just get 
hammered. Slaughtered. Yeah. We actually had a player in Columbus flip off our own fans. Oh. He was getting heckled. He turns around, <laughs> gives them the bird, and I was like, hmm, don't think that's the way to yeah, hand everybody over. Well, whoever wasn't heckling you now is. <laughs> I mean, that was – I was just thankful. It was like a collective like, groan at that point. It's like, oh, yeah, bad like, move, mm, bro. Yeah, bad, that is a bad decision. Hey, when you look back, what – if, when you're telling a story to someone to try to convey what it's like now versus what it was like then, mm-hmm. what's kind of your, what's kind of your your, in the trenches story about early days of Major League Soccer? Well, I, I always try and remind people it's sports get better. Mm. That that's what happens. Sports get better. You know, nutrition makes a difference in performance, strength and conditioning. All these things that we we didn't. No. We had an athletic trainer and coaching staff, and that was what we had. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of figured out your nutrition as you went. And if you were lucky enough to make it five or six years, you probably had it figured out. And Maybe you know, there was a blender in the locker may, room. You know, like you never know. And, shake afterwards. and it, it, what I try to remind people from the get-go is, like, the game is better today. The athletes are better than today than they were. 100%. And, I, you know, I, I like to joke. Like, if, if I came out of college today, I wouldn't be playing in MLS. Yeah, and, a lot of us. And, yeah. and if I did come out of college today at the level I was at, I wouldn't have played in MLS. And to be fair for anyone doing their research, I didn't play in MLS <laughs> when I came out of college. I played two years in the A-League yeah. uh, for, the, for Seattle before I was picked up by L.A. But that's an important place to start, you know, and the athletes are better. The soccer is better. But back then, you know, you, no one had a stadium. Columbus had a stadium. They were the first team to have a stadium, I played in the opening and, night, yeah. and it was incredible. Yeah. But you didn't train there, no. right? So, so you had a stadium, but you didn't have a training facility. And everyone that played back then was driving from their locker room, or, or yeah. you know, or they were moving to different facilities throughout the weeks and the months. You were out of college, and yeah, yeah. When I was in LA, we we trained in the outfield of the softball fields at the at the Rose Bowl, mm. the public fields, yeah. and then. When I was in San Jose, we, we trained at a small community college that was 20 minutes away from the locker room. So you'd get drive to the locker out, room, right? you'd meet, you'd change, you'd get in your car, you'd drive 20 minutes to practice, practice, and then afterwards, half the time we would change right there at the field because our house was closer. You know, closer. So you'd just go home and shower there. Uh, and the biggest thing that's changed is the, just that, that environment for the players that nearly every team in our league has now in one way, shape, or form, some mm-hmm. better than others, but the players have so much greater access to be good at what they're doing. And we have nutritionists. We have sports psychologists. We have all these things that, when I played, weren't really thought of as performance enhancing. They were just kind of experimental. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's the biggest change is everything that surrounds the athlete. And then, you know, when you get into the technical side of MLS, there's, you know, a million wormholes we can can get caught in, you know. But, you know, you're looking at the quality of the coaching staff and the quality of – the athletic training staffs, and you know, once you get into all these different facets that go into the field and performance, I mean, we could we could break that down for days. So, <clears throat> what year did you come in? Ninety nine, two thousand. Well, I was ninety seven. I graduated in ninety nine. Okay. Um, I did not graduate in ninety nine. <laughs> um, three no, semesters I, of Cal I State played. I played for the Sounders for two seasons, okay. and I was really lucky. Back then, the MLS had a loan system because yeah. the rosters were small. Yep. And I went 18, to yeah. I went to Colorado several times, and that's where I made my MLS debut uh, the following year. And so, it, it you know, I mean, I guess technically I came in then, but I I signed with MLS and with the Galaxy in two thousand one. Two thousand one. Yeah. You know, I I just think about those days, and and how, at the time, the foundation of the league was either guys that had previous coaching experience in the A League or some now defunct yeah um, league that had been in the United States, uh, indoor included, or they were plucking guys like Bruce Arena and later Ziggy Schmidt and kind of trying to build off the back of extremely professional. Uh, college programs that had a tremendous amount of success. Right. But I think where maybe the most important growth that we've seen, and, and I mean, it's easy it's easy to try to connect the dots with you being here, but with all of us kind of Dick Buckus foundation-building players from back in the day, that once our careers ended, we went into coaching staff, or you went into the front office, or media, or uh, going to become underneath the umbrella of league of league executives and 
it was almost as if that growth period, those those first 10 to 15 years, then afforded guys that are were no longer playing but had experienced the rough times to then make sure nobody else followed that path of making the simple mistakes again and trying to trying to steer this league into a right direction after it finally stabilized of I mean I was a part of contraction in Miami and I remember at the time it could have been Kansas City it could have been Dallas could have been Tampa it could have been Miami <laughs> and it ended up being Miami and Tampa Bay right um but it was almost as if it needed that first generation of former MLS player to make sure that the league wasn't doomed by rep- repetitive mistakes. Yeah, and I, I think, to be fair, the first place I heard that was actually Commissioner Garber. Oh, wow. Yeah, he, he was very adamant that that the league's sustainability depended on several things, uh, being the growth of the league and everything with the finances, and they had their business side to do. But he always believed that the more ex-players that got involved, the better off the league was going to be. And different capacities, yeah. to your point, in every different capacity in terms of coaching, youth, development, front office, scouting, all of those Strength things. Strength training. Strength yeah. and conditioning. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen it all. Yeah, Nick Downing. And, yeah. and you know, we, we, we got that. And there was an influx of guys that were, like, coming to the end of their playing career and going into these roles and sorting it out and trying to make the league better kind of in their own role and, and, and step by step so players didn't make the mistakes we made. Mm. And then I think in the last three or four years, it's it started to really stabilize. And you see some very, very good ex-players coaching now. And they're really good coaches. Some of the players were great players that are now good coaches. Some of the players were average players that are now great coaches. Yeah. And, and you see it on a lot of different levels. I think uh, I'm kind of one of the last guys that played and went into the coaching and then and then got this wonderful opportunity to move into the front office when I did. Uh, that had a lot of timing issues with the league and the and the club and everything, and I've I've worked hard to take advantage of the opportunity. But I don't think by any stretch of the imagination I'm the last player that's going to sit um, and get the opportunity that I got. And I think that process over the years, uh, Commissioner Garber saw it a long time before a lot of people, and he was pushing that agenda mm-hmm. hard to get players involved. And it's not just with the teams; he's talking about in the New York office yeah as well. a lot of guys yeah. uh, I, a, a lot of former players that have now been salary budget managers that are absolutely now, you know technical directors or or general man you know the one thing and and we were talking about this on the mike pecky coaches show earlier tonight um craig that you're you're kind of one of the last of your breed of your kind and i, and I mean that um in the most complimentary way possible by by this league has changed and transformed in such a tremendous fashion that someone like yourself, I think, if given this opportunity now, it would almost be so overwhelming that you wouldn't even know where to start. And, and I use that in context of trying to understand what in the hell Major League Soccer is <laughs> and how you navigate that scene five years ago. And that's without Real Monarchs. That's without Utah Rose. That's without the Development Academy. That's without Harriman. That's without RSL uh, Academy in Arizona. I mean... It, it truly is wild to think about the amount of growth that you've experienced and yet suffered with over the last five years. Yeah. You know, I, I think I was fortunate to come in when I did, to your point, you know, kind of right before that growth boom. Mm-hmm. And because not only did I get to grow, but I had Elliot Fall standing next to me, who's who's just a, he's a cap wizard. I mean, he's, he's really brilliant with MLS rules. And 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 then to grow beyond that when Rob Zarcos came in and, and Dan Egner came in and Andy Williams came off the coaching staff as a scout. And, and over the years, just being able to have these guys grow with us. And then when the women came, we brought Steph Lee in. And, and Steph's been awesome. You know, she was a team admin in Seattle and essentially took the same jump I did. And all of a sudden, she's sitting there telling the coach she used to work for, yes and no, you can't have things. And that's a big adjustment, oh, too. Yeah. And, and we've, we've all grown together in these roles. But I think the timing, and you hear people say it all the time, timing's everything. I think, you know, this would be a massively overwhelming job to jump into uh, in, in the current world of MLS. And we're about to change again with the CBA. Yeah. You know, we, we've got another change coming, and I don't know what it is. And I love when people ask me because it's one of the few times I don't have to sugarcoat anything. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But so – you know, you and I have had these conversations over the years. You can have you – know, I get a kick out of some of the clubs that like to pontificate publicly yeah. about what their identity is or when mm-hmm. they take a 
full-page ad out in the paper to try to clarify who they are and how they want to play yeah. their football and the so-and-so way and all that because it's hilarious to me. Because the reality is you guys have to be so nimble as an individual <laughs> organization that when people say five-year plan, I instantly dismiss them at what they could potentially do with their job because this league moves too fast to have a five-year plan. You guys have to be operating, what I would imagine, a six-month plan, a year plan, and maybe a three-year plan, but be fluid in all of that. You can't be rigid. When, when I first took the position, we put out a three-year plan, and that was because we figured the CBA that was currently then wasn't going to have a massive impact because of where we were. But So we laid out a three-year plan, but that plan wasn't specific to player. That plan was changing the focus of our club, changing to really focusing on our homegrown players mm-hmm. that were coming up. And we had this really good core group, super talented kids at the time, but kids. And we knew there was another group behind them of five or six guys and you know, changing the focus to go that way, which to be fair, wasn't a brand new idea. I mean, people forget, like Garth was... I was working with Garth as yeah. a coach in 2014, and he and I had a ton of conversations about, oh, wouldn't it be cool if MLS got to the point where there were clubs that that's what they were doing, and there were clubs that still spent a bunch of money? And essentially what we were having a conversation of as these you know, two American guys like were like, man, wouldn't it be cool if we were like the rest of the world? Yeah. <laughs> but we weren't wording it that way. Yeah. And, and, and looking back, it's, it's really taking shape. And if for those that are really breaking clubs down in MLS, you're starting to see the separation. Haves and have uh, Yeah, and, and you're starting to see some clubs fight that, and you're starting to see subclubs perhaps start to accept the evolution of the league, and you're starting to see some clubs like us who really worked hard in those first three years to shift the focus of – competing worldwide to go buy players and just buy, 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 and spend, 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 and become a club that says, yeah, we're still going to go buy players, but we really want to focus on developing our own. And that's been the most fun part of the last five years with all the chaos and everything that's happening around it, growth, 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 like really having that shift in our focus has been a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And it's taken a lot of buy-in, a lot of tough nights sleeping, because every once in a while you lose 4-0, and it's because you're young. And every once in a while you lose 4-0 at the end of a three-game week, and it's because you're tired. Mm. And deciphering those moments and being able to move past them and kind of see six months, 12 months, 18 months now is really where we're at. Uh, Let's take a quick time out. Stay with us. We have more to get off the chest. Welcome back off the chest. This one without Mike Pecky. I'm Brian Dunseth, joined by Real Salt Lake general manager and all-around good guy, Craig Weibel. Thanks, man. I meant that. Yeah. It's you stung. know what's cool? It stung an innocent bystander in the room, but I Wait. appreciate it. Tyler Giblets over there yeah. giggling away. as yeah, normal. Just... Uh, By the way, if you ever want to ask a question, digital at rsl.com, digital at rsl.com. We were just talking about the growth of the league and kind of how uh, how a man in Craig Weibel's position stepping off the field and given a tremendous opportunity to kind of step into the business side of an organization, how much growth we've seen in Major League Soccer. And, Craig, you kind of touched on something, collective bargaining agreement up for uh, renegotiation. And obviously those negotiations are are already happening, albeit they're not dialing in everything that they need to dial in because there's still time to negotiate. And there's all of these things happening in, in particular, the League's Cup. Just uh, going down with a late announcement because of the players union wanting to make sure that they are compensated correctly. And I'm not going to drag you down to that path. But as a general manager, it's, it, it just has to be a little bit concerning knowing that there is an opportunity for a work stoppage. But yet you can't do anything about it because you have no effect on either positively or negatively helping out these conversations between the league's representatives, and the players' union for a new collective bargaining agreement. Mm -hmm. But in the midst of that, you just touched on something. You're not sure what they're going to agree upon. You're not sure, ultimately, what (laughs) this give and take is going to look like, just like you weren't sure what the hell target allocation money was when it was first announced in the middle of the season when all of a sudden some teams had the ability to go out and drastically change the trajectory of the second half of their year. Yeah, and and look, I mean— uh, th- those conversations are well above my 
pay grade and yeah. happily well above my pay grade. I don't need to be in the weeds of the the legal structure of the agreement that the players association and and the league come to, but um you know, my focus is the competition, you know, on a daily basis what how my group focuses is with the mindset that we'll work on a daily basis of improving the performance of the club, mm. which improves the league, which improves the product, which improves the experience, and the experience is really what this is about. And we can't lose sight and get too selfish and look, you know, well, I don't know what the CBA is going to do, and, yeah. and that impacts me. Yeah, it does impact me, but if we get too selfish in these jobs, we really steal from the enjoyment and the creativity that we should be focused on. And so we'll continue to to go, and, and there'll be rules that change, and you know, hopefully, I'll never publicly complain about it. But uh, you know, there'll be something that that I that I disagree with, or there'll be something that I think is more beneficial to us than other clubs. Yeah. And and it just is what it is. I mean, well, and the, but that's why I ask you, you because know? when we're talking about plans, you, I would I would imagine for someone like yourself, you have to. Well, this well, this is a, a conversation point and an interesting one, yeah. and multiple layers to it. You built you built a self sustainable club with regards to how you've built your salary budget and the players that you've built your club around, knowing how you can kind of stagger things out and make sure that the development within the growth is available underneath the guise of whatever move, whatever new gam tam fam scam jam, whatever it may be, is added because I I like it. And I'll tell you why. I like that the league's nimble. I like that yeah. the league is introducing oh, all it. of this yeah, I because it. I think it's a constant recognition of, hey, we're nowhere near where we want to be or we, we're we nowhere close to where we need to be, but we're going to figure out incremental steps of how to get there as quickly as possible. And in the structure Absolutely. of a collective bargaining agreement, they can't be hamstrung by four- to five-year deals where they can make no growth whatsoever. And I think beyond the scenes, that's the one thing that people kind of struggle to understand is that there still is a give-and-take and it might be contentious at times between the hierarchy of Major League Soccer and the Players Union. But that's okay. 100%. That's part of the fun. <laughs> I mean, you know, look, I, I like – do I wish dump trucks full of money would come outside the stadium every day, day yes. and just give us the cash? Yes. Yeah, the answer is yes. That would be fun. But at the same time, when, when you're limited with a quote-unquote salary cap and, and the budget and this and that, like that's when creativity comes to light. You don't have to be creative with buckets full of money. You don't have to get it right. You just move on to the next one if you get it wrong. You see clubs all around the world doing this. And what I like is that challenge presenting it in the room and being challenged by the guys I work with and the women I work with to be more creative with what we have. And that's where the chip on our shoulder comes, and that's where the chip on the fan shoulder comes, and that's where Salt Lake has built their identity on this, not just our club. But as a city and as a community and, and spreading out across the entire valley is we like that chip on our shoulder because we've been forced to be more creative than everyone else for a long time here. And mm-hmm. it's not going to stop. That's the challenge we're always going to have because we're a flyover market. You hear all these different cool terms that economic, you know, we're a flyover market and we're, we're this and we don't have Fortune 500. These are true facts. At the same time, they're just the box that gives us the outline to be creative within. Mm. Some people look at it as boxed in and they, they get frozen. We can't do that. We have to look, how do you stretch this corner out? How do you make this line bend and stay within those lines? And that's where, you know, the CBA, that's not my job. That's not my business. But I love the fact, to your point, that our league is not opposed to admitting we need to keep being creative and growing. That's where all these things come from, the TAM, the GAM. The, all those ideas are great growth-oriented mechanisms yeah and you look back and you go yeah they all helped they all helped and i'm sure there's some more coming i don't know i love not knowing it'll surprise me that's okay i don't mind it we'll keep fighting the way we are we'll keep building the way we are we'll keep focused on what we need and when it comes around we'll we'll adjust and and we'll be very competitive and to your point we're building a sustainable model as it is in terms of how we have guys coming up through our system and who we're bringing in our system so i don't think there's anything they could throw at us that will ultimately destroy the ideas and and the foundation of what we were building. So one of the things that I've been impressed with um, as you guys have kind of built this foundation has been looking back over the years and with the creation of the USL side Real Monarchs and attachment to Real Salt Lake and then bringing the academy here to Harriman. And even though 
player-wise, it was wildly successful with the generation of players that Martin had down in Arizona, mm-hmm. now in Casa Grande, now bringing it to Harriman, um, and still kind of having your footprint in a market that is a difficult market to pull organic players from with regards to when you look around other different areas in the United States and some of the clubs that because of their district or how it lines mm-hmm. up, yeah. um, it's much more beneficial to them. In the midst of all of this, in the five years that, that you've been in this job, there's been a clear path that you guys have set up. And whether it be guys like Justin or Aaron or Brooks or Bofo or Corey Baird, um, you know, the, the list goes, Julian, the list goes on and on. There's also second chances for a guy like Nick Beasler, who was drafted mm-hmm. number five in his class and never got a real opportunity in Portland, but decided to come to Monarchs because he knew the umbrella of Real Salt Lake was there if he performed well with the Monarchs. Right. So Justin Portillo yep. uh, right now, yeah. similar. I thought he was fantastic in preseason. You know, with with what you're building, and then obviously going out and finding a Sam Johnson and Albert Rusnak, a Demir Krylock, and Everton Luis, guys like that, Nathan Monuoha, Marcelo Silva, guys like that, Jefferson Savarino. How how do you kind of find that balance of we are going to promote from within, we are still going to add from the outside, but the biggest issue for young American players is that stuttering age. The moment they get out of the under twenty World Cup to the Olympic team, those three years, that's where we see a lot of guys burn out because they're not getting minutes. Yeah, so, I mean, the focus of what we've set up and and the way we focus our efforts is um, we have kind of a trident of identification. And the first one is homegrown, Mm. the ones that we're coaching every day, that we see every day, that we know every day. And that's our main focus. You know, we have to be committed to developing the top tier of our players and that requires minutes. And, uh, you know, a couple young guys that have taken advantage. Jordan Pena stands out. Played a handful of games for the Monarchs this year. Uh, a young man that we signed to a Monarchs contract thinking, ah, he's probably a year away, let's see. And he's yeah. done very, very well. And then you have the guys like Nick, like Portillo, and, and several others that have come through the system, Putna. And, uh, you know, that's our first tra- piece, like spear of the trident is, is homegrown players. And can we bring them in, develop them? And then the second one is young international players. And young is a weird term because in soccer that can mean anywhere from 15 to 24, depending yeah, on how depending you want to define it, and what league you're in, and the budgets and all this stuff. So we're looking at you know, young international players that can come and make us better. And, and perhaps one day we sell those players because they have an international value, clearly. Uh, and then the balance comes in that third sphere of the trident, which is the veteran leadership. And how does that balance these other two out? And mm. the other two are ever changing. I mean, just because we want a homegrown striker to be create, you know, come out of our system, doesn't mean they will. But the best player might be a left back, mm. might be a center back, might be a right wing, might be. And so as those players come up, we've really got to work hard to adjust the roster and put good veterans, good leaders, good professionals yeah. around those guys to teach them how to do it. And for the most part, you know, we've gotten a lot of those right. And that's not me patting myself or my group on the back. But we don't have a lot of misses, and we do a lot of homework to get there. The hardest position to get right for us so far has been striker, but with Sam, we seem to have found a guy that can tuck the ball in the net. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I want to talk about homegrowns for a second because as the Under-20 World Cup is in the midst of yeah. – we're in the midst, and Tab Ramos and the Under-20s take on France tomorrow um, after advancing in second place from the group stage. You know, I go back to a Luis Gill, a Jordan Allen, um, a, a, a Brooks, a Bofo, an Aaron, a Justin, now David Ochoa, a Richie Ledesma, and a Sebastian Soto, because I, I still feel that they cut their teeth with this. And Taylor Booth. Taylor Booth yeah. as well, um, even though not on this final roster right now. Um, but you know, it, Yeah, a special player nonetheless. No, no doubt, yeah, no doubt. Sorry, special. I wasn't I wasn't. No, 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 I know yeah. you weren't. I just, um, just, I was trying to put, kind of build the umbrella so people understood the amount of players that are representing in their age group what is essentially the World Cup for the under-20s and right. and what the influence has been for the RSL Academy. So it kind of gets me, and we had a question about Sebastian Soto, and inevitably, Richard Desmond, in that conversation. Yeah, those are good it, conversations. It, the, the, the thing that I've seen, and I, when I talk to Tony Miola on, on our show on Sirius every day about this, Christian Pulisic's success, his individual success, has... There's been a light that has been shined on young kids. Not that it wasn't there before, young American kids. It's always been there. But in a different way that, hey, now we can figure out ways to 
watch all these kids being developed in real time, and you've got two different systems. You've got a pay-to-play system, and yeah. you have an academy system, um, which FIFA is still trying to figure out how to how how training compensation and, and wade their way through, especially with the pay-to-play system. But with Christian and his success at Borussia Dortmund, whether it's a Weston McKinney or a Tyler Adams or um, a Chris Richards or an Uli Line uh, Uli Vines, um or Sebastian Soto or Richie there are so many clubs that are now looking at kids in the United States, specifically from the age of 14 to 17, mm-hmm. that they can try to fast track to get to Europe and get within the design of their academy, which they've been doing it for hundreds of thousands of years and better than everyone else, allegedly. Right. How, how, I guess, how difficult, how frustrating, how do you navigate all of these conversations knowing that there is an allure of kids that number one want to be professional soccer players, but now have options in the way that maybe you and I didn't have options back in the day. Yeah, it turns out not many international teams were scouting Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and Spokane, Washington. <laughs> the militia didn't for guys like me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was weird. Uh, no, look, it, it's it's a compliment while it is frustrating to have seven or eight international scouts watching our our games. We ha- we we have to take that as a compliment, and we just have to keep our keep our head down and and really manage the relationships as best we can. And that's not to say any of us are perfect. Mm-hmm. I've made my mistakes, and you know I, I I probably owe one or two families an apology just for perhaps not having a conversation early enough. So so they were left wondering. It, it you know nothing rude or or insignificant there, but you know constant communication as we grow, as we gain more attention. Um, these teams are watching our guys younger and younger and younger. They're watching the U17 games now, and they used to watch the U19 mm-hmm. games. And it, it's just, it's good. It's healthy. It's competition. And we're seeing competition come into our backyard. I mean, who would have thought when this club was created that in a short amount of time, we would have major international clubs coming into our backyard to take the players that we are training? You know, that that's major clubs. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, we're talking Taylor Booth went to Bayern Munich. Yeah. You know, uh, Richie Ledesma to PSV. You know, uh, Soto's in Germany, and, and he was with the Bundesliga team. And it goes on and on and on. So um, it's healthy competition. Now, do we want them all to stay here? For sure. Yeah, we do. Mm. We we, we uh, Sometimes we time those offers perfectly, and sometimes we don't. And sometimes there's opportunities that come up where, you know, you almost you almost have to pat the, pat the kids on the back and go, hey, that's a heck of an opportunity. Like, yeah. you should take that. But But if it doesn't work, just know you have a home. Like Brooks, when Brooks came yeah, back from Liverpool. I mean, know yeah. you have a home. And, and sometimes, you know, should Brooks go to Liverpool or should Brooks go to Real Salt Lake? <laughs> Only Brooks knows that. Yeah. You know? Because each individual is different. Yeah. And some, some kids at a younger age want that experience mm-hmm. and are ready for that experience. Some, some want to come here first and then go. And we've seen it happen both ways. Yeah. And you just have to try your best to manage a relationship so that when they do come back, it's a healthy relationship, and they want to come back to Real Salt Lake. And and by and large, like we're at a point where I think all of these guys, all of them. I mean, we're not talking about hundreds, but you know these guys that that chose not to sign here, but went other places that we supported in those movements. There'll be a day they come back here happily, yeah, not begrudgingly, happily, yeah. because they know that the club and the fan base support their dream. So that that's a big difference here than you'd have like in a major city as well. You leave a major city and. You know, people are going to question why you did it and you turned your back. And that's not that's just not our culture. Yeah. It's not who we are as a fan base. It's not who we are as a city. So, you know, I, I think what kind of gets lost in the conversation at times with fans, too, is kind of trying to understand how things like these these moves happen, these decisions happen. Yeah. And it's I think sometimes it's as easy to try to place blame and just take a single broad stroke. But without the knowledge of within kind of the capacity that Major League Soccer is operating, that what is a realistic ceiling financially for young 16, 17, 18-year-old players to sign for an MLS, um, they've got little birdies in their ear telling them, hey, don't take that. I can get you this over here. And then kind of the international market competition. But, But again, I mean... How many how many kids are really Alfonso Davies like a gener- once in a generation type of player? Well, for, one for a Vancouver Whitecaps, you know. I mean, literally, he's he a is, unicorn. Yeah, he's he is the, the best young Canadian player in the last umpteen years. Hundred percent. And and um, you know, 
you see that every once in a blue moon. But I, I always, maybe because I've been in sports for several years as of you, I always think blame is just another way of begging a question. Mm. Like people that point fingers in sports, it, it's not because they necessarily truly believe like that guy is to blame or that woman's to blame. I think it's just that they don't necessarily have the platform to ask the question they want. Mm. Now there's 5% of all sports fans that don't want to be happy. I'm okay with that. There's 5% of the world that don't want to be happy. Go for it. I support you in that. <laughs> but the other 95 may point a finger, but they really just want to ask a question. They want the platform to ask a question. That's yeah. why I do town halls where, yeah. and, and you it's and I have done great, them together, yeah. where yeah. it's like, listen, as long as no one tweets, as long as no one uses social media to say anything I've said, ask whatever you want, and I'm going to tell you. And you, I mean, I, I remember yeah. looking at your face one time when I answered one of the questions a fan asked, and you were looking at me like, why are you saying, like, don't yeah. stop, you yeah. know? But but the reality is, like, those platforms have to be there. Yep. And and I don't mind giving that platform. That's why I do town halls, because blame is, again, for me, it's just another way of asking a question. And, and give the people a chance to verbalize that and give yourself a chance to answer it, or it just remains blame and confusion. So we, uh, Bryce on Twitter is asking. I don't want to answer this one. How do you find the balance <laughs> as a GM between having a tactical influence on the club, yet giving the coach the space to operate? Yeah, so it's it's a really dynamic question, especially the way it's worded, Bryce. Is I having coached, you know, I don't want I never wanted a GM to walk in and tell us how to coach our team because the GM wasn't at every meeting, wasn't at every video session, wasn't at every practice, wasn't at now the GM and the organization hire the coaches to do that job. Mm -hmm. My job is to challenge the process in ways that help them improve. Sometimes I'm able to do that. Sometimes my challenges fall on deaf ears. But sometimes I'll walk in the room thinking I'm right. Well, that substitution, oh, there's no way we should have made that substitution. And Tuesday comes and I walk downstairs. And I, we meet every Tuesday. And I'll say, guys, what was your thought process on substitution pattern? And then they'll walk me through the process of why they made this change and when they made the change. And and I sit there and I go, oh, well, yeah, that's a good answer. You know, okay. <laughs> and, and, and so, again, you know, the balance for me is uh, my job and the front office's job, my group's job, is to build the roster as best we can. And I've told our staff this a million times. We'll never apologize for giving them too many good players. Mm. And hopefully we are giving them too many good players. But in terms of how do we influence the tactics, we have a written curriculum that we contribute to as a front office with the staff. We create that together. We have uh, characteristics, personality traits of every position desired. And our job is to go find those players, get them into the system. And then the coach's job is to really manage it and, and impact it. Now, every once in a while, I need the coaching staff to, to punch me in the nose. And every once in a while, I've got to punch the coaching staff in the nose. But it has to be done very respectfully mm. um, and with the balance of, look, tactically, and I can say this to the staff because they know it's not malicious, tactically, I believe we should be doing this. And it'll be a conversation. And listen, in, in this organization, I want the feedback from them. So they'll say, well, from a scouting standpoint, we think this needs to become a priority. This question needs to be the first question you ask a player. This yeah. has to be what you say. And, and those conversations in our organization are, are back and forth. And, and I wouldn't say that every organization's run like that. Some GMs run a, a, a much more do it my way or the highway, and some organizations are coach-driven, yeah, yeah, and it's run yeah. by the coach. So. Um, here I, I influence the tactics by asking questions, uh, but I influence the roster by bringing those players and presenting those players and helping the coaches see through just the video because co all coaches, no matter what, see the video and that's how they judge the player. Mm -hmm. And they, and we're the ones that have to give them the background on the personalities and, and all of those things. Uh, RTS ground crew on Twitter saying, Hey guys, first time, long time, big fans. So wives, why don't we play darts anymore? Uh, that's because the Grass Whisperer has moved to an exclusive location in the Arnold Brown building with a locked door and rarely invites the front office down. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting. We're all on the same server. We all have emails. It's not that hard, cyble at rsl.com, yet I don't get the email invite. So maybe maybe it's just a bad connection. RTS Ground Crew. Um Locker. Good, good guys. I haven't seen them in a while, though. Locker slam. Uh, big Samantha Johnson on Twitter saying, might be too late, but will there still be an English club coming over for a friendly with the Tigres match now having been announced? 
Uh, I don't think so. You know, I think I think that the Tigres match, as well as uh, you know, it's a competition. So, yeah. so if we win, we advance, and yeah. it adds another game. It, it's a busy, busy summer at this point. So, uh, you know, we we had talked earlier in the year about bringing over an English club, but but due to the competition, you know, we we really we want to focus on it. And we want to give ourselves a chance in it. Why Why do you think there's so much pushback about the League's Cup? Because I love it, and I'll tell you why I love it. Number one. I think even if MLS gets hammered in this competition, that it's a good thing. And I'll tell you why. Because it forces the owners to reassess and the competition committee to reassess how they look at the roster and the budget given to um, people like yourself to go out and build said roster to compete. Because I still think the weakest part of MLS rosters, when you compare and contrast, is going to be probably six, number six to number seven in a roster down. Um I think you're looking at a bare minimum of a $15 million difference hmm. uh, in terms of seven on. Is that fair? Maybe more? Seven to 15? It's, it's significant yeah. with, with the major clubs. Yeah. You know, specific to Tigres. Yeah. You know, very, very different What's financial Tigres? structure. $40 million budget? Uh, I, I've, I've seen numbers, but I don't know specifically, so I'd no. hate to answer on their behalf. Yeah. But, I, but I hear it's north yeah, of, north of, of that. that. So, um but I think the I think the pushback comes, you know, again, when you go back to blame, when you go back to fear, when you go back to all these balances, like, you know, some some sometimes people want to ask the question, like, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Why do we have to be better than Mexican teams? Why do we have to be better than Canadian teams? Why do we have to be better? And the question is going to exist forever. And the answer is, for some people, we don't. Mm-hmm. 100% we don't. And the answer for others is, we do. 100% we do. And so that's what this competition is. Hmm. It's nothing more than that. And, you know, there is a natural uh, competitive nature when two teams get on the field and one is from the U.S. and one is from Mexico. And and you and I played way back in the day when we played quote-unquote friendlies. And I'm doing air quotes because there was nothing friendly. And the only time you thought it was a friendly was your first time as a player when you took the field against the Mexican team. And as a as a you young American, and you were like, "Oh, this is cool, man! We're playing." My yeah. first one was Santos Laguna, and we're playing against this unbelievable sp- striker, Pony Pony Ruiz. Yeah, a, I remember Pony, incredible yeah. player. And I step on the field, and I'm like, "Man, I'm playing a, like this is amazing, yeah. El Pony." And I'll tell you, it wasn't six minutes into the game he clipped my heels, and he meant it. You know, it was kind of one of those fouls. And I'm thinking, "Well, that's not friendly. <laughs> like, that's not exhibition." You know, and I, and I'm thinking going on the field like I'm a big guy. I yeah. play fairly intimidating style. Like I'm I'm gonna hang off a little bit. You know, it's six minutes in was when that was destroyed. So this this natural competition that, yeah. that you know, and and look, some people will look at this and go, oh, it's just a chance for you know players to get injured. Oh, it's just a chance of fatigue. No, look, it's a chance to play good soccer teams. Chance to grow, and it's a chance yeah. to grow. And and if you win, good on you. And if you lose. Learn from it, one hundred percent. And that's where that's where we are, and that's what this competition is. And this competition isn't a one year competition. It's got to be thought of in in multiple years. Mm. It's not just this year. It's five years from now, six years from now, ten years from now. What does this mean? Does this become our mini version of this secondary competition that everyone in these countries cares about? Mm. And that's that's I know that's the long term vision and goal. So in the short term, we're going to play the game. You know, and we're going to play to win it, and hopefully we do. You know, when I when I, when I think about Liga Amaki's teams and their split season, they are so used to traveling. They are so used to playing quote unquote mm-hmm. friendlies. They are so used to being in the United States. Yeah, they're used to some teams traveling down for Copa Libertadores. They've got Concacaf Champions League. They've yeah. got Campeones Cup. Um, you, you, they just got done with the Clausura playoffs. All of these things matter. Each game matters. And and what I keep trying to convey is not only is it up maybe a once-in-a-lifetime experience for Tigres fans in or around the Salt Lake Valley or uh, anywhere in the region to fly in and see their team, much like ICC competition, to see their team up close and personal because all they, you know, they're stuck here in the States. They're, they're not going back to watch back home. It becomes an iconic moment for a lot of these fans. But then within the confines of this competition, yes, I get that a lot of people will think that Major League Soccer is trying to hang on to the coattails of Liga Mekis. But Liga Amekis is just as interested in figuring out a way to be dynamic with Major League Soccer ahead of the 2026 World Cup when, oh, by the way, we're hosting with Canada and Mexico. So, I mean, I, I, 
when I said the other day to David James, he was like, well, would this be a, you know, how many people are you expecting for this game? And I was like, I'm expecting a sellout. And he's like, well, why? And I was like, because they're Tigres fans. And the last time <laughs> Tigres was in the stadium, it was a sellout the same way it was for Monterrey, the same way, I mean, for Cruz Azul, this is what happens. This is the, the, the furor of, of, of following this, this, this iconic group of teams from Mexico and an opportunity, again, for not a teaching moment, but for an opportunity for everybody to kind of absorb a, the history moment, of clubs. It's a moment to prove something. Mm. That's that's all it is. Yeah, you, you I mean, it's a, it right there, it's yeah. a moment for the front office, for my group. The, these guys that work so hard, Elliot and Dan and Vahe and Andy and myself and Rob Zarcos and the, the guys upstairs that work every day to build a culture and an environment to support the USL team and the first team and the staff and the players and a lot of things behind the scenes and everybody through the organization mm. that works every day to try and put something together that's special. And, you know, you don't get many opportunities to be special. We get 34 nights a year to feel good about what we've done mm. all year. And the truth is if you win 17 of your 34, you're one of the best teams in the league, if not yeah. the, yeah, so we have this really, really strange job where we try and put these moments together that are special, not only for the players, but for the fans. And every once in a while, you get a 35th game and you do something special like we did last year at L.A. And then you get a 36th and a 37th where we came dang close mm. to doing something special. Yeah, and, 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 and this is just another one of those moments. Now, does it mean, is it as significant to every single fan? No, it's not yet. It's not yet. But I'm looking five to ten years down the road and going, this is a significant competition. It's a competition, unlike Champions League, that is already whittled down to just the people that won their competition. Mm. But don't forget, that second-place team in every country was pretty darn good. And that third-place team in a lot of the countries is pretty darn good, too. And you can go down four or five or six in some of the countries in our region and still have some pretty darn good football being yeah, played. Yeah, so yeah. that's what I think this competition ends up becoming. In year one, yeah, go ahead and be critical. We all are. I'm critical of it, too, because I don't necessarily think it's being done perfect. But guess what? My job is just to help our organization prepare for that game. And there'll be a lot of us taking it very seriously, for sure. So the summer transfer window is open. Uh, I don't expect you to tip your hand to all of your moves uh, <laughs> ahead of huh. the window opening and shutting. Um but when you look at this Western Conference, how how aware do you have to be at the general needs of a roster as we start to open up to this phase of the season, knowing that the pendulum has most definitely swung back in favor of the Western Conference and the depth and the competition and the fight for these top seven spots in the West? It's it's a fun conference. I mean, you know, if you if you take a short nap, you you've lost a couple games. Yeah, yeah, you're in trouble. Uh, it, it's an interesting conference because there's a lot of teams that are just now kind of quote unquote finding their way and, and are, you know, you have the Minnesotas that, that appear to be ready to spend. And in years past, that's been something that's been questioned with the stadium. Yeah. You know, and you have, and you have other clubs really analyzing the dynamics of the business and everything else. And so you have to be critical of every move. I, I still think, you know, we're not the club that needs to be looking at everyone else. I think we need to look at ourselves. We need to figure out how to improve our group in the moment because we're not going to go outspend these clubs that are spending a lot of money on one player. We're not going to do it, and we shouldn't do it. It's not who we are. It's not how we identify. We've tried it. It didn't work with our fans. And so we're going to keep grinding. We're going to keep keep looking at players that fit our system. But you know, we do have a couple places, obviously, that we want to improve, and we always will. As soon as we improve those, we'll make another short list. And we've got very specific needs this summer that hopefully we'll be able to address. And uh, in in the meantime, uh, you know, we'll we'll keep our eye on this model of this youth development that we've had, and it's really garnering a lot of attention. And there are clubs approaching us about players weekly at this point. And if you know, we'll see if any of those make sense. Because the next step for us as an organization is is to grow into being a developing and selling team with the firm balance of competition still in mind. So mm. that's kind of what the summer. You know, the summer's a not to get you know on the soapbox, but this summer is about really specifically improving the team in one or two spots, but none of which are going to be 
overwhelmingly surprising and none of which are going to be world-class pickups because that's not what we need to do in our organization. I mean, I just look at Natum last summer and nobody, at that point it was kind of a, not a throwaway signing because I don't think that does justice to Natum, but I don't think people understood at the time bringing him in what that was doing to set up, not just in the short term, but for the long term of this club. So there, were, there was a lot of high-fiving in the front office. I mean, to your point, I, I, I agree with you. I think it kind of slid under the radar. But from a planning and perspective, to bring a guy like that in and put him next to Justin and Aaron on his outside and you know Donnie on, on, his, on his other side and, and young yeah. guys, Brooks Lennon playing right back, like you've just picked up a true leader. Yeah. And those are the those are the ones where you know we kind of grinned because we we knew a lot of people were critical of that one and we were like, all right, yeah. just give it time. Like that's one there there's some players where you cross your fingers and go, "Man, let's see if this one works." And then there's other ones where you're like, "All right, I can't wait for this one." It's like Demir, Demir's yeah. first four or five games, you know, there was a lot of a lot of critiques, critics, yeah, you know, yeah, critiquing sure. every movement he made. Oh, it's too negative. It's too yeah. and we just kind of chuckled in the front office like it takes more than five games for anyone to move from a foreign country and acclimate just to the league, yeah. let alone living day to day. And so, well, then there's you know. Everton who literally the whistle blew and he's like, rah, 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 <laughs> just going after <laughs> he's, everybody. He's been a really, really good. I mean, we have him on loan and that's one that we've got to take a really close look because we do have the agreement in the current uh, structure of the loan that, that we can execute it. And that's one we're taking a really serious look at right now as well. Well, I appreciate you, uh, you, you always, uh, being upfront and honest, by the way, after the end of, uh, filming downstairs, you said, when do I get to ask you any questions? You got, you got, you don't have questions for me. I mean, you were just not, having a moan. Because, that, I was having a moan, but yeah. none that are appropriate. Okay. You know, or the most of them are just, just sheer jealousy because of your hair and you know, your high tops. My high tops are strong tonight. Jordan 1s, all reds. I, I believe it. So appreciate the time, man. Thank you as no, always. Man, thanks for having me. Uh, for everyone that wants to ask a question, digital at rsl.com next week off the chest will be without Brian Dunseth, but with Mike Pecky. So we'll see what he has in store. I can't promise anything because last time he hosted, it was a debacle. Off the chest is an RSL Podcast Network production in collaboration with KSL Podcast, recorded at KSL Radio Studios in Salt Lake City, Utah, produced by Ryan Hale. Tyler Giblets hanging out in the corner giggling. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you catch your podcasts. We'll see you next week. Dan Farns is the man.